Welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, presented by Roast House Pub and Idiom Brewing Company in Frederick, Maryland, as well as Havoc Brew Supply, the one-stop shop for all of your brewery's needs. Check them out at hophavoc.com. Hey everyone, I'm your host Chris Sands, and today I'm joined by Josh Bernstein, uh, author, journalist, I mean I would call you journalist too, right? Yeah. Or just all-around writer. Oh man, journalist, author, everything all together. I mean, you name it, I've pretty much done it over the last two decades. And I think we could definitively call you a beer expert at this point also. I hope so. You know, I've drank my fair share of beer and written about it and talked to enough people. So it's always weird being called an expert on something, right? But Oh, I absolutely never- hate anytime someone does that to me or the word guru. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I don't use the word guru or that. What always gets me is like anytime somebody's really into a hobby, they call them avid, which oh, is yeah. kind of my uh, my pet peeve. Like there's avid homebrewers and avid blah, blah, blah. And avid's one of these things, I think, with beer that becomes like such a, almost like a cliched phrase. Uh, but all of your books are like solidly in the realm of like educational kind of, which I feel like if you're delivering that type of information you can definitely consider yourself an expert yeah i think i got into beer writing i mean gosh probably early i mean drinker first beer you know then start writing about it second but i think my job has really always been i think translate what is happening in this broad world of craft beer to an audience and make it really i think accessible i think craft beer is one of these things just beer beer in general something that you start off you're like wow that's great friday night's awesome and then if you want to know more about it and you want to know what's happening, that's that's kind of my job to figure out what's important and what's not important and find the people that really best exemplify and can talk to, I think, these constant change, changing shifts in craft beer in America. So there, I have a slew of questions. A lot of them even touch on the things you've already said. But I think first we should get promoting your new book out of the way. Well, a new version of an old book. That is yeah. newly available. Yeah, it, it's kind of wild. Like, think about the new version of an old book because you re- rarely, I think, have the time or the opportunity to revise your past. Like, how many things have you done 10 years ago that you're like, I'm going to make that better? And then, so it was a really rare opportunity, I think, for me to look back at something I did. When, I'm 44 now, so I did wrote that book when I was like 32, 33. And it's not just, I think, 10 years of knowledge I know better, but, you know, I just... The industry has changed so much. My knowledge base understanding has really, I think, evolved over time too. And, you know, a complete beer course came out in 2013. The, the goal was like really, you know, both simple and kind of incredibly far reaching, <laughs> which was really, I think, to, you know, center the past of beer with the present and chart a course for the future and really interview people across the spectrum of the industry to talk about how beer is fit together to create this. I think compass for people to navigate both tap rooms, navigate bars, navigate beer stores. And I think it was a success. I mean, I think the book sold something like more than a hundred thousand copies translated in multiple languages. It's not something you can ever be like, I knew it was going to be a hit. You have no idea. Yeah. Right. But um, when you the hope and pray, asked, but you, you hope and pray, but you know, things fail and succeed for reasons I think outside of yourself. Um, it's just the right time, the right place. And I think at that point in time, 2013 was really this run up of what we're talking about, this big, huge boom of craft beer in America, 
was underway. I think there was something like 3,000 breweries back then in the country, um, up to like more than 9,000 now. So you're talking like a tripling of the number with gosh knows how many tap rooms and how many beer bars and stadiums now stocked with craft beer. Yeah, I think we first started talking about my publisher of redoing this book in, I want to say like 2019. And the goal back then, I think, was just to kind of like, you know, window, like polish it up, change all the labels out that have changed over time, um, update a few things here and there too. But, you know, then the pandemic hit and then everything changed and like all the, and not just sort of, we stopped, like, not just something as simple as like adding in hazy IPAs, but how we acquired beer how we were getting together around it. So what was initially supposed to be, I think, a really quick, easy job became almost tearing this book down to its foundation and rebuilding it again to make it more useful and also, I think, more reflective of a of a world where, you know, 2013, people had iPhones and stuff like that, but we didn't have all this access to the world's information and yeah. taps and things like that waiting for us at every moment. So if you can access all this information, what information is going to be really valuable? So I think it was just a, such a crazy rethink of what the book was. And what what was actually the usefulness of a book in 2023? And how could I make it, I think, more valuable to people? So yeah, in, in essence, I think it was almost creating an entirely new book built from the foundation of an old one. How long did it take you to write the original? The original one was about an 18-month process, I no. want to say. Um, when you're writing, when it, with beer books and beer is such a visual medium that, you know, you look at the beer label, you look at the beer in your glass, you look at how the head like looks as well. So when doing a beer book, I tend to think about the design as much of the, um, as much as the words itself, yeah. you want both to be really excellent. So when you, I got done writing the book, then you work with the designers to figure out how it's going to hang together on the page, what pictures work, work well with it too. And having to. Yeah. So, I mean, 18 month process from the writing to the editing, to getting the pictures, to making sure that everything looked as good as humanly possible. And then the crazy thing with books is they get done really far ahead of time. (laughs) And so you're done with your project and it's not like you hit print and all of a sudden everything's out in the bookstores the next day. I mean, there's like a six month to a year lag sometimes between the finished product to when you're actually out there. Um, getting on the streets, talking to people about your thing. So it, it's wild. You get done with something you're like, phew, then you almost have to ramp up the excitement machine again and yeah. realize that what you've been staring at for so many years is totally fresh to somebody else. How So how long did it take for the second edition uh, to be written? You know, I mean, I started, I think I got, we talked started in um, 2019 on the heels of my uh, fifth book, Drink Better Beer, on the heels of that. And then, the goal was to have that out for 2021. Um, and then once that book started, once I started the process in early 2020, um, I just had to pause everything. Just, you know, March hit. And then the beer industry started scrambling and pivoting itself in circles. And so, you know, if, if you're trying to create a book that's going to be a product of a moment and a time, there was really no certainty that I could point to to say yeah. that these breweries were going to exist. So I probably took about a year off, I think, from the project while we waited to see, you know, not to be blunt, but like what breweries were going to survive, yeah. what was going to be out there too. I mean, we saw, because I think, and this really gave me the time and the bandwidth to really think about how we, you know, how we embraced beer in these earlier days, you know, throughout the you know 2000s and early 20 and early 2010s. I mean, it was really about Taproom Nation hadn't exploded yet. 
um, we really would um, go travel out to different countries. We'd travel cross country to the Portland, Oregon, to San Diego, even the burgeoning Vermont scenes to really experience um, what beer was. So you went to like a handful of bars that I think would be selling these great beers. And we did it like that. We went to beer festivals and then, but all these points of travel festivals, those things didn't really seem like they were, I, I couldn't put any stock in certainty of these things were going to exist anymore. Yeah. So I had to take them all out of the book. The which idea they of beer feel, weeks, which, you know, think like if that feels like it is a slowly dying uh, genre. Yeah. Cause the, there, except for a few outliers, most of them, the attendance has been plummeting on them or they've just quit altogether. Like it just beer festivals don't seem to be the cool thing to do anymore. Like they were in the 2010s and, uh, or maybe like pre really COVID. Uncapped is brought to you by one of Frederick's original Maryland craft beer destinations located off of Urbana Pike, featuring a warm, inviting atmosphere and knowledgeable staff serving up fresh, locally sourced culinary creations and unique craft beers on tap. Open seven days a week, our friends at Roast House Pub invite you to enjoy a casual lunch, happy hour specials, delicious dinners, and specialty desserts. Follow them on social media to keep up to date on their monthly beer dinners, mom's spaghetti dinner battles, and what beer is being featured for Buck Above Monday. Idiom Brewing Company proudly offers a delicious variety of beers to satisfy the most discerning tastes. Best known for their wide array of IPAs, delicious fruited sours, and robust porters and stouts, Idiom has a simple goal in mind, to bring people from all walks of life together, to enjoy themselves and each other. Whether you're a hophead looking for explosively juicy IPAs, or one of the adventurous few looking to try boozy, sour, or complex flavors, or just looking to enjoy classic styles and seasonal favorites, they'll have a little something for you. Idiom Brewing Company is located in downtown Frederick, just south of the intersection of East Street and East Patrick Street, with ample seating directly on Carroll Creek. Yeah, no, I think beer festivals at that point in time, they served as these introductions into worlds of flavor. I think that, you know, you never knew, like, you walk into a beer hall, you walk into a big, giant, like, whatever, warehouse, old armory building, wherever you're at, and you walk around these four walls filled with hundreds of beers you've never had before in your life, and it felt almost magical. You know, like, only in hindsight do you realize it was all reps there with like distributor driven events yeah. and things like that. But we didn't care back then. Right. It was like the beers were so different and so unique, but you know, our there's now there's just, you know, better, like I talk about this all the time, there's better beer at your gas stations and supermarkets now than there were at the best beer bars, you know, 10 years ago, you know, it's just yeah. that this access to great beer is, it's amazing. So on one hand, it's like crap beer is one, right? Flavor has dominated that we desire more flavor in our beer you know, but looking at it as a book, you know, it'd be dumb to suggest festivals and, you know, beer bars and things like that that may or may not still be around. So I, you know, took out everything about beer weeks, which was like nine pages in the book, man. So I took out all of that. Um, breweries that best exemplified styles of beer had ceased to exist or had mutated. Like uh, Green Flash was the IPA brewery. If you think about Green Flash in 2013, they were like the IPA brewery, right? I mean, they were so emblematic of like what was possible with West Coast beer. Yeah. Um, and even I miss Palette Wrecker. I know, but Palette Wrecker, I mean, that's also too like this IBU war era 
which had just kind of like gone out and like petered out of them. So we had this rise of hazy IPAs, had to bring in pastry stouts. Um, but really, I think like the big like thing when I had more time to sit on my hands and reach out to people who also had more time was just, you know, bringing people into the book in a way that I had the ability to. So instead of, I think, so instead of just simply being like, go visit XYZ, which is, I think, a super important thing to do 10 years ago. Now it's like, I, I still think there's this vast misunderstanding of what actually goes on in a brewery. I mean, I don't mean your shiny tank tour where you're like, here's where we make the beer and here's our packaging line. It's like, what do these people actually do? So I wanted to really, I think, bring these stories in across a spectrum from the marketing reps, the salespeople, the canning line operators that are as important, I think, as important and integral to a brewery running efficiently as the head brewer is for creating the recipes. And so all of these things all together were just like super deep, a super deep um, revision with the book. And it was just cutting out so much and, and bringing in so much more because, yeah, I mean, also, I think we, we I think at, at an earlier time, we, it was all about, I think, accessing these beers. And it's like, look, Ma, I made it. I drank Westy 12. <laughs> I drank Pliny the Elder. And now, like, I've done it. I'm a craft beer person. But I think our language of beer has gotten so diffuse nowadays that we used to have, I think, a common language and a common flavor palette across the country when Stone spread and Dogfish Head spread and Brooklyn Brewery far and wide. Chances are you tried their beers. But nowadays, I mean, beer is so intensely local that beers that you're drinking are not beers that I will maybe ever get a chance to drink yeah. because they don't they don't travel that you know, beers being sent to other cities made sense when cities didn't have their own beer scenes. But now every city's, you know, every, most every city in America town's got at least like a local brewery to call their own. And what's the point of having a craft brewery distributed in 50 states if what they're getting locally can, you know, be comparable in flavor and taste and made by their friend's buddy from down the block. So I would, I would imagine that it was much harder to do the rewrite than the original writing because of how more complex and diversified that the craft beer industry is now. That's a hundred percent accurate because back then, I mean, I could say stone IPA, I could say Sculpin and chances are most people across the country would understand what that meant. And that would be a flavor touchstone. And it also be things you could easily access. Um, but what ended up happening so many and so many of the bedrock brands you thought were going to be around forever have shifted or the company's focus and distribution patterns have really reined in. I mean, Chris, like name me like, and even when you're trying to give examples of certain beer styles to try, can you name me five widely available porters or stouts that are non-adjuncted in like the five to seven percent range and may have like a multi-state distribution footprint? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> right i mean you get like bell's kalamazoo you know you get there you get like uh what the shoot subsidian and black butte things like that but i mean there's just like very so like i think we're in this weird paradoxical moment where there's like more breweries than ever before but as far as like there's a diversity of beer styles i think things have gotten winnowed down in a bigger way that you know import beer is really Belgian beer has really fallen off a cliff. Even though all these Trappist breweries, you know, that section of the book, you think to yourself, I'm done. What more can be said about Trappist breweries? I mean, they've been around for that. 
you know, you watch like a Spencer Travis Abbey and Mass close down to like basically decide that that brewery was a viable industry for them. And you watch all these other breweries, um, Travis breweries, I think slowly their, their ranks dwindle. Um, you know, I mean, uh, monks have always had to do outside work to be able to support the, uh, the abbeys. And, you know, but is beer a viable platform or should you go back to making cheese or candles or something else? So just stuff like that. And I think part of that's our estimation of Belgian beer in America has really shifted when I think 30, 40 years ago, it was Belgian beer, English beer, German beer really exemplified flavor. Like imports were the original craft beer, I think, for so many people. Um, and now we just, you don't need them all in the same way. So I would I'd venture to guess the easiest way to get the book is Amazon. Um, yeah. But is it Amazon? Is it also going out to smaller booksellers? Yeah, or, it's across, you know, okay. the the book publishing landscape. It could be a whole other episode of that too. But yeah, yes. that's like, I don't know uh, that world. So I don't. Uh, yeah, uh, my publisher is Union Square and & Co. And they're a wholly owned subsidiary of Barnes & Noble. Okay. Which means that you get it at Barnes Noble, but it's like, it's, you know, people are rivals, but they're also competitor. It's, it's so complicated. So yes, Amazon, but also a ton of independent bookstores across the country. Then I also sell copies on my website because why the heck not? Well, there, that's the best place to go get it then. Yeah, and, if you want to sign a copy, joshuambernstein.com, and I will go down to my local post office and yet again fight <laughs> with the postal people. And tell them that, yes, this is actually a book and it deserves media mail rate. <laughs> <laughs> the, so what, what would you say is the number one uh, ad, uh, trying to think of the best way to say it, but like the number one thing that is adversely affecting craft beer right now? Um, one thing's adversely affecting craft beer right now. I think craft beer has spent, I think, the last much of the last decade being, I think, it being the coolest kid on the block, and it's no longer the coolest kid on the block. That it doesn't dominate the headlines in the same way that these early rises of beer did back in the day. And I think now it's I think having to understand that you are going to be one of many choices right now. And that you're not the entry, you're not always the entry drink for people. That, you know, that beer, I think beer for a lot of people, you're in college, whatever, you steal beer from your dad's friend. That was a lot of people's introduction to alcohol, for better or worse, not any judgment zones on there too. Um, but nowadays, it's not just it's not just beer that, you know, you've got hard seltzers and you've got buzz balls, you've got RTDs, you've got hard, everything, everything is hard. Right now, so you know, beer is just one of many, um, one of many choices. I think right now, too. And I think it's like understanding that you're one of many choices. You know, you got to find a way to like um, adapt and continue to find new audiences. And I think, and that also goes into the role of the tap room, where I think tap room beer is the the choices. Tap rooms have become, I think, you know, our quote unquote like American answer to the British public house. Um, in a ways, but the hospitality hasn't really matched up with the quality of the beer. And I think across the board, and I think there's just, I mean, this is an issue across the hospitality industry. There's just not enough people out there making things there, the people that are really great at their jobs. And then it is a hard job. It's a really hard job yeah. for people. But I think 
having people that can combine, I think, this knowledge base of beer with like pouring great pints and also guiding people into the world. I think that's going to be the, I think that's the huge hurdle right now is how do you, how do you, you know, actually, you know, bring more people in and like make your hospitality as great as your beer. Yeah. I had a conversation recently just with someone to the first point you made about not being the cool thing. Whereas like people our age, the having a brewery in your town, making great beer and being able to go into their tap room and drinking a beer. it was the cool, shiny new thing to do. But someone in their twenties, like a brewery is just another place that exists in, in your town. It's not, there's nothing special about it at this point. No, not really. I mean, it can be a great place to hang out at much like your local coffee shop, much like your local whatever. I think like what, I mean, because you got kids too. And then I have a kid. I think one thing that's not get talked about enough is like, you know, nobody really wants to drink typically what their parents do. And like, we've got a whole generation of kids coming of age that may have watched their parents, their grandparents, their uncles go to tap rooms and talk about craft beer. And it's like, not about you, ma'am, but it's like after a certain while, it's like, do you want to drink? Do you want to follow in your the, your parents' footsteps or do you want to find your own pathway? So I think we're going to be – it's going to be a pretty fascinating next five years as the next generation of kids comes up and they're like, are they going to find tap rooms to be a cool place to be or is it just going to become like a cliche? And like nothing, nothing stays shiny and new forever. And I think that's what the beer – and the beer, what we're talking about, modern craft beer in America is still like what? We're going to say like – late seventies, you know, like late seventies here in Nevada, early eighties, eighties, nineties. It's like still super young. It's like, and it's still kind of hasn't even reached like it's advanced, hasn't even reached retirement age yet. So, I mean, I think we're still a lot of growth in seeing how, how multiple generations will, will adopt, will adopt craft beer. I don't think beer is going away. I think we've drank it for too many centuries, thousands of years. Um, But, you know, it's always going to evolve. Great beer starts with great ingredients. At Havoc Brewing Supply, they offer a wide selection of premium hops, fruit purees, malt, cleaning supplies, and more. Their family-owned business is dedicated to helping you create the perfect beer. Havoc offers flexible contracts, lightning-fast shipping, and unrivaled customer service. Join the Havoc Brewing Supply family and elevate your brewing game. Shop small, brew big, grow together. Visit HavocBrewingSupply.com today to learn more. McClintock Distilling is Maryland's first and only certified organic distillery, handcrafting gins, whiskeys, vodkas, and cordials from non-GMO organic ingredients in downtown Frederick. Named the best vodka distillery in the country by USA Today, best gin in the world at the International Spirits Competition, and double gold at the World Spirits Competition for bourbon, rye, and gin. Open now for tours, tastings, and classes. Come sample the most awarded distillery in Frederick today. And, and another data point to the, the coolness thing is, you know, a couple months ago, Flying Dog announced that they're leaving Frederick. Yeah. And five, ten years ago, people here in Frederick would have lost their minds. Uh-huh. And I think kind of overall, everyone was like, okay. <laughs> and it's like no i don't i don't think anyone really cared now that they were no they don't and i mean but you think back what this is like flying dog second moves here originally a colorado yeah. brewery so you know you've got this like transplanted brewery that became 
you know, a beloved, you know, a beloved brewery in your backyard that's now being produced elsewhere. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's like a double whammy. I mean, Guinness, I think FX match just like sucking up. I know it's crazy. This brewery, this brewery that no one has any idea who they are. And then when you say Saranac, they kind of do, um, is now producing, is stolen. I think the, yeah, the, the two largest breweries in, uh, Maryland. I mean, that shows, I mean, there's excess. I mean, obviously not stolen, but (laughs) oh yeah, no, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I just don't think we, we've lost our capacity for you lose your capacity for outrage after with everything. Right. Yeah. You know, like acrimony fades with time. And I just think all the energy that we expended on goose Island being bought and the other things being bought. And I mean, you know, it's just like with each successive sale, you just saw people get a little bit less angry and a little bit less of giving a shit about that too, which in, in a lot of ways is going back to like how we feel about our larger brands. Like how many companies does PepsiCo own that we enjoy on a daily basis? I mean, probably like 50% your, of them. <laughs> yeah. You go to your Taco Bell, you think of your Taco Bell in your local road, you don't think like PepsiCo or something like that or Yumber, whatever, Yumber, you know, it's just, you don't think of these companies. They just so I just think we're moving into a I think we're moving into a future in the near future at least. We're gonna see a lot of brands being produced. The brands are gonna exist, they're gonna be produced by other other people. I mean, it's happening on a it feels like a weekly basis. I'm not even exaggerating. You know, Drake's taking over Bear Republic. Um, you know, it's just um, was it seller maker in San Francisco taking over rare barrel. Um, and on and on, and still producing the beers out of new facility. I mean, it's just going to be a drumbeat of these things happening. But, you know, I think, like, my, my read on this is just, it's beer is finally becoming a normal a normal business. <laughs> that Yeah, that's what like, I was uh, recently interviewed about Guinness leaving, Duclaw leaving, uh, and Flying Dog leaving by the local Fox affiliate. And that's kind of what I told him. I was like, it's just like, it's a normal market maturing. It, it's, yeah. it's just what is it, what's happening. I mean, there's, there's outside forces going against it. It's causing those things, but I mean, distribution's tough. You, you have to really hit high volumes to make that profitable. And consolidation is a way to make that happen. Yeah. I mean, regional breweries are having it really hard right now. I mean, they're just not, you know, they're you're either big or you're small. And like being in the middle is just a hard place to be. And I think, you know, flying dogs like Duclaws, things like that, were kind of caught in the middle, right? You know, you know, this is like nothing. And I thought they were finding, I still see them all over the place in New York City, bodegas and things like that. But I don't know if people are buying their beers based upon their um the names or everything, or even for flying dogs, like the value proposition of like a double dog, like a 12% double IPA. I mean, that's like the bodega staple right now, which is like, let's party everybody. <laughs> and in, I almost wonder too, in flying dog specific sense is that if their marketing doesn't quite resonate like it did 10 years ago. Yeah. I think, I think sort of that aggressively, um, aggressive sexually innuendo marketing yeah. does not go, does not fly. 
and does not resonate in a way that may have like, you know, I'm doing another story as like every other beer writer is like what's happening with Bud Light right now. And you know, hark back to like their buildup and, you know, bikinis and Bud's McKenzie and just all these things yeah. too. And you just can't see this becoming like a, a thing that's going to become resonating with the large, with you know, the vast majority of Americans at this particular moment in our society. I mean, everything, our culture changes so rapidly these days too, but I just think this like, you know, flying dog, you got your pearl necklaces, you've got like, you know, raging bitch, things like that too. And I think, I think they were, they were a product of and breweries like that were a product of this point where craft breweries adopted this really punk rock ethos to kind of, you know, separate themselves from the pack. It's like, we're not like your yellow lager, you know, we're yeah. never going to do this and that too. You almost had the posture to separate yourself and it felt like very contrarian and rule breaking, but what happens when the contrarian people grow big? I mean, you can't be so, you just can't. You're not, contrarian. you're no longer counterculture at that point. Yeah. And the same thing with like, you know, all these counterculture, like I, I, I talk about, so like IPA at one point in time felt like punk rock and now it's basically mall rock. Right. And so it's like something that's been kind of like what was at one time such an insurgent aspect of something is now just been adopted by the masses. And that's okay. I mean, the people found something that like it's great to have like under similar collective tastes are and like give that to people. But if you're, you know, if your personality is craft beer, you know, it can't just be it doesn't stand for cult. It doesn't sound for the counterculture DIY movement in the same way that it may have. Like, you know, we adopt things as signifiers of who we are, be it our music, be it our drinks. And, you know, craft beer for a while definitely communicated the thing about who you were as a person, I think. It was an easy shorthand for, man, I know, like, you were, you didn't, you flew against the mainstream and then you were this and you're trying to find, and that really fed all these, like, counter, fed, fed these small different cultures that beer really found its way into these worlds. And, you know, and craft beer, someone's asked me recently, like, you know, does craft beer mean anything anymore? I, you know, I just, no, it just means, <laughs> it just kind of, it just kind of means it's shorthand for flavor in a sense that craft beer just means maybe flavor and maybe more booze, I think for some, for some people too, um, or to the point craft beer just means IPA. I think there's a whole, well, there's the segment that it means IPA. There's the segment that it means a whole bunch of fruit and a little bit of alcohol. Um, and then I think there are the, like the old school craft beer drinkers that want everything else now again. Yeah. But that, but that also is kind of, I think that's two things. I think that's also another form of kind of like the counterculture thing. When you see the rise of like English, like when the rise of English milds, you know, rises like that's, that's being too charitable. The, um, <laughs> People adopting English miles for like pepper releases. You're seeing um, people doing like Belgian quads again for wintertime. You're seeing things along those lines. Maybe people tinkering with saisons in the summer. Um, I think there's a, you know, it's, you know, people are always going to try to find a way to position themselves as the opposite. Like the crap lager, you know, I mean, you know, we're seeing more and more of it. It's just like, I, I talk about this a lot too, that, People are always that jokes like, oh, it's the year of the logger. But, you know, it's always been the year of the logger in America. Yeah. We've just ignored it. That it's always been the year of Modelo, been the year of Michelob Ultra, Bud Light, Coors Light, Miller Light. Their sales dwarf anything that craft beer could even dream of being. And so to say that the year of the logger kind of is this 
I think this insular bubble world that too often that people within the craft beer scene think about themselves. You think about everybody knowing everything about strata hops and like, you know, dials and things like that. The vast majority of people just want to have fun and they just want to drink something while talking to their friends or watching baseball or to unwind after like, you know, or, you know, everything. And I think we over, I think in a lot of ways we overestimated the broad importance of craft beer into people's lives that it can, it is important. It's fueled a lot of livelihoods, but the reality is most people don't care that deeply. <laughs> yeah. When, and I, yeah, I think the, the, the caring part, I feel yeah. like you're right, is, has gone. Um, but I think that there's still a place because in people are, I think are always going to want to support local. Um, and there's still like the breweries that put a lot of effort into quality and to providing a nice tap room experience like that still going to drive people, but the, like it being like, you used the word cult before, like that mm -hmm. idea seems to have died off a tad. Yeah. I mean, the cultish beer thing, I think the pandemic democratized cultish beer to an extent you couldn't wait in line. You know, you can yeah. queue, queue up um, craft beer to bore and other things. People are delivering great beer to your doorstep. And, you know, when things are rare and limited, you know, you value them more. When they're ubiquitous, they tend not to have that same sort of, I think, you know, that shiny factor on there. But yeah, but I really believe like, no, craft beers aren't going away anywhere. I think there are people are that tap, like great tap rooms, great breweries are finding themselves to become inseparable parts of communities. And I think that's that's what's amazing right now. What the tap room has become, we, we lack, I think, these kind of um, neutral middle grounds to hang out at that in, in our country. And tap rooms yeah. have really provided, I think, communities. I'm not going to get into the whole dog, kids, and tap room debate because, you know. Oh, that's an whatever. easy way to strike up a, a, you know, a vicious whatever. If, fight. <laughs> if you want to find a place where there are kids are allowed, you can find it. If you want to find a place where kids aren't allowed, you can find it. If you find go to a place where all are allowed, you've made that choice to go there. Yeah. <laughs> you've made that choice to go there. And, you know, it's the beer business. And, you know, just because you open up something doesn't mean that you've got to, they have to follow by the rules that you believe in. So, um, but yeah, but I think tap rooms are going to tap room. I think tap rooms are more insufferable than ever from local communities never before. And I really see them giving people local senses of pride in a way that we don't have so much anymore. And are with sort of, you know, the, industrialization of so much of the products and how things are produced far and away from where they're consumed, you know, having a local brewery, local distillery, local tap room, I think definitely is a sense of pride and locality in a world that's overrun with, um, with chains and all these things. So in doing the rewrite, what did you find to be the largest change in the industry? Um, I would say parts of the largest changes were definitely, I think, how IPAs have evolved. Um, if we go back to, you know, tw early 2010s, it's really about this, A, the intensity of bitterness was really big, but also we had this kind of like proto-color wheel idea about IPAs. You had your red IPAs, your white IPAs, your black IPAs, <laughs> and you had your Belgian IPAs, and your 
Brett IPAs and things like that too. And, you know, to like fast forward today and you're like, you know, black IPAs are still kind of lumping along. Brute IPAs have disappeared. Um, cold IPA, like the metric style. So I had to like really redo the entire IPA chapter um, just because through like these like huge changes I think we've seen. Um, I say food, like the wood age chapter. Um, if you go back so much, I think 2013 was really this reflection of the Goose Island Bourbon County stout use bourbon barrels, make great stout beer, and here we go, let's party. But I think the the fooders and things like that didn't really exist for large-scale production of beers. Fooder-age lagers now, um, great fooder fermented everything. So I really brought in the idea of like how wood, the idea of wood is transforming as well. And I think the uh, stout chapter needed a big stout chapter talking about pastry stouts. But the other huge aspect was, I think, we have to think like how, how, you know, craft beer is being perceived globally back in 2011, 2012, people are looking to America as sort of this inspiration of what a beer scene could be when all rules were off. And so in the original edition, I'd have like, here are five great breweries to know from the UK, from Scandinavia, et cetera. And, and we were actually back then getting dribs and drabs of their beer too. So it wasn't just talking about things for lip service. I mean, you could get these beers, but nowadays, any of these countries could demand entire books written about their beer scenes. And so for me to be like, here are five breweries to know if you maybe travel to the UK and then, you know, or if you get a one limited edition drop and it's just, it didn't really feel useful. I think to do, it felt, felt very short. It could have been so much deeper than the book had space for. So I took it all out, all of that and really brought in, I think like other versioning styles and things like that. that are going to become more, that were seen to become more resonant, things like um, Grodziski, um, things like Grisette, which is like a great summery beer, um, and really talked about how these things are working in the broader landscape. So, yeah, I mean, what's the point of me telling you what breweries are awesome in New Zealand? Yeah, if you, <laughs> you know, if we don't get any New Zealand beer, really. But what was useful was talking about New Zealand hops and how those are really driving, you know, the flavors of so many of your great beers. So it's like really, or, you know, thinking about what was useful to talk about in all these different countries and cultures and how that would fit in together. But yeah, I mean, all those things and the, and then all the profiles as well, you know, love victory to death, but they're no longer sort of known for their pilsners. They're a golden monkey factory, which is awesome. They found something that works for them. So instead of having them with a chapter on pilsners and lagers, it was um, Jack's Abbey up in Mass somebody who, and then for sour beers, I did, um, you know, brought in Hermit Thrush, unlike Crooked Stave, which has really evolved their businesses to be more about, you know, their Von Pilsner and their IPAs and beyond. They still do wild beers, but it's just not, it's core. It's just, it, it was almost like you, you just watch how breweries have evolved as businesses over the last decade. And, you know, what you make 10 years ago may not be what you make if you're staying in business today. Yeah, did you devote any paper to the heavily fruited sour phenomenon that I think is still here, but maybe dying off a little bit? I did. And, you know, and I think um, I was trying to find a way to talk about it in a way that was sort of because, um, you know, most of these most of these heavily fruited sours are just like small taproom releases or limited stuff, too. Yeah. The number of broad release things. But I want to talk about but really within, I think, the context of like like two things how 
wild and sour beers come with patiently aged in barrels with stuff like Lactobacillus, Brett, Pediococcus. That had that which felt like a promise of the future of beer. The, the kettle sours nipped that in the bud right there. Why wait a year or two to have something that's going to be complex and requires explaining when you can get this like clean lactic acidity with kettle sours then like hit it with your favorite fruit, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it became how sour beers kind of turned into almost like fruit delivery vehicles for a lot of people too. So I brought in the urban artifact people to talk about that a lot because um, they've done huge things with fruit fermentations. Um like Fowl Allen from Anderson Valley, you know, their Goza, when their Goza came out, I mean, it was like, oh my God, a canned Goza. And now their Goza is like a vehicle for fruit flavorings and additions and onward. But even, even Gozas and Berliner Weisses, if you think back 10 years ago, we thought they were going to be like everywhere and everything we talked about them, but the styles have, you know, they, they still exist, but there are very few traditional um, traditional interpretations of Goza and Berliner. They're all mostly, you know, Vehicles for fruit. For fruit. Um, And it makes sense. I mean, Goza has always been a hard word to say for people and understand for Leonard Weiss as well. Um, I love love those styles, but I see why from a mass market and for sales perspective, it's easier to have like a kettle sour base. I just had a story for Vine Pair about like why Rocket Pop is happening this summer. Um, Yeah, use your kettle sour base to add in like cherry lime and then quote unquote blue raspberry and call it a rocket pop sour and then you know instant instant basically understanding tapping into nostalgia tapping into what people want out of it have you ever had urban south's rocket pop goza i did i had it uh, a couple days ago it's pretty good you know more yeah. lime focused i would say you know i i enjoy yeah that. but but yeah what well, was well, cool for me to like I get the one factoid from that story um seasonal beers have a really hard time succeeding nowadays because you know seasonal beers at one you know let's just say 10 years ago were these points of differentiation on your calendar um that you had your spring beer your summer beer your fall beer your winter beer we look forward to them as being so different but now you get new releases every single week and like calling a beer summer that maybe not sell in summer so what do you do? And like summer means something different to everybody across the country, but down South in new Orleans and Houston, where urban South has locations. I mean, I think they roll out their rock pop in like um, March or April after Mardi Gras and it runs through right until Oktoberfest. So it's this thing that becomes their hot weather seasonal without calling it a hot weather seasonal. Yeah. So it just fits cues. in the time frame. It fits in the time frame, the refreshment. What do you want when it's hot? Something cold and refreshing. A beer would be great. A popsicle may be great too. So, yeah. And I think that these evolutions of like seasonal beers to become more about time, place, moment, and what they evoke, um, than less so about just fitting into like some seasonal framework. So you're a Pilsner boy, right? Um, yeah, that's because I'm like getting older. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do love. I just like to say that my um, my palate has refined to appreciate, but yeah, it's because I'm old. Um, uh, what, you know, we're old. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. What, so, what is your favorite subgenre, and what what is your f- favorite of that? Yeah, you know, subgenres. Um, I do like a good like um, Czech pilsner, especially served on you know 
like on a Luke or Fawcett. I mean, there's just something about that pageantry Likewise. that you, yeah, it's, it's like, you know, the flavor is there too, but it's really about the pageantry. You get this like gorgeous mug, this head, you watch the bartender pour the beer. And I mean, it's, it's creating sort of pomp and circumstance, like proper pomp and circumstance around, around beer. I mean, I used to love when I could find, you know, like this, this is going to sound funny, like the Czech consulate used to have a restaurant in New York city and like way back in 11 or 12, they were doing like milk pours and things like that. Nobody cared. (laughs) And now that is, I would say, and now they care, but you know, if I can find a good Pilsner quell on drafts or more like that, I think that's awesome. Um, Just because I think there's, where I found myself gravitating toward is just because it's new doesn't mean it's better. Um, and I've been really interested in revisiting kind of these benchmarks of styles and things that have stood the test of time, um, you know, and reacquainting myself. I mean, maybe, so that, that's been something that's been great for me. And then I also love like a cream crisp, sorry, you know, a nicely bitter German Pilsner, you know, maybe with a bit more of a cutting bitterness on there. I think Bitburger, you know, from Germany remains like one of the uh, most amazing values um, within the beer. I mean, just like you can get like a four pack of cans for like six, seven bucks, something like that, which is just like bonkers cheap. I mean, there's no way, I mean, there's no way that any brewery, you know, craft brewery could ever touch that, which is tough. It's like economies of scale built upon on that but you know locally if i'm going for pilsners and lagers you know in brooklyn uh wild east is my go-to for you know czech pilsners um three's Vliet is like a great like bodega staple now for having an awesome beer um jack's abbey really hits that sweet spot of price point and really great uh, price point and quality together as well so i tend to like optimal gravitate toward beers along those lines i would say you know but you know Four percent range, five percent tops, yeah. give or take. I love a good Alexander from. Uh... Oh yeah, oh yeah, Schilling. I totally forgot about Schilling for some. Yeah, Schilling is also top notch as well, and we get them in the New York City market quite a bit. But um, yeah, there's better. You know, the amount of pilsners we get nowadays are just. It feels like the quality is really has really gone up in the last handful of years. You know, not just the number of breweries doing it, but their quality of what they're creating. I think. Part of that, you know, um, the Czech government brings, they have like, they regularly bring um, brewers over there to meet, to meet people and understand how they process things. Like, yeah, I mean, it's like propaganda a little bit, but you also see how people do it up and then you can take these things back home and hopefully properly, properly make it happen. But, um, but we saw too this year, I think like Sierra Nevada had stopped doing their Summerfest. Um, and now they brought it back for as a summertime beer and I'm, you know, 10, 11 bucks for a six pack of Summerfest is like thumbs up. I mean, you cannot go wrong with that beer for what you're getting on there. I think all the, um, great Pilsners available and just maybe loggers in general too, is that like brewers are finally getting to make what they've wanted to make and mm. there being the demand for it in the consumer from the consumer. Yeah, I think brewers are getting, you know, brewers are advancing. I think, you know, you get into this business a little bit, you know, you want to have something that meets that sweet spot of refreshment, um, refreshment and ABV and maybe challenge from a brewing perspective. I think the only thing that I'm putting my brakes on it a little bit is just sort of how can these brewer, how can these beers compete against a lot of the larger lager producers? We're seeing a lot yeah, of that people have perfected taking- it sometimes for a century. 
Yeah, and you know, you can take aim at, you know, ABI and Molson Coors and all these people for maybe their advertising practices, things like that. But as far as being able to like nail their recipe and repeat that from a quality perspective is that's something I tip a cap to. And I mean, that I think you were asking me earlier on about some big changes too. I think one of the big changes for me has been my mindset. So I think this whole David versus Goliath thing that was like so huge back then that craft brewers positioned themselves as David and Goliath. And you're like, no lagers, nothing like that. Forget this big, big lager stuff. Even though I personally drank a shit ton of Bush Light and Natural Light and Natural Ice when I was in high school or college. But it was like showing that maybe I've evolved. Like, yeah. I don't care. <laughs> well, every, that, at every beer festival, the brewer's lounge is filled with uh, Miller High Life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've evolved, but you know, there's, there's something to said that now I've understood that like nothing is so cut and dried as a David versus Goliath narrative that, you know, these big beers may not be your flavor. It may not be what you want out of it, but they're done really well. Um, and to that point, and you know, when I'm gardening in my backyard, you know, my bodega has got what 25 ounce cans of Bush light for like a buck 75. And that's a pretty okay gardening beer that hits this like metric of, what I want is something cold. It's not going to get me too drunk. It's going to take out the pain of weeding. I've, I've <laughs> read by multiple people that the bush like peach is actually good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't doubt it. I mean, people like peach, yeah. people like people like beer. Um, bush light apple had a big following as well. Um, yeah, I mean, we're just in the flavor world, man. Um, beer, Beer, for what it is, takes a bit for people to understand. I mean, it's like having your first, if you drink coffee in its unadulterated form, either as espresso or a black cup of coffee, I mean, you're going to be like, holy crap, that's bitter. That's not pleasurable. I don't really like that. You know, our receptors have trained us over what evolution to watch out for bitterness. But, you know, put a little cream in there, some sprinkles, some whipped cream on top, something like that, a little bit of sugar, and it's pretty okay. <laughs> um, beer, like beer in its pure state, like, you know, not everybody likes the flavor of lager. Not everybody likes the flavor of that too. So maybe, you know, giving people flavors they like, I don't see it as being, nothing's heretical anymore in beer. I think all the sacred cows have been slaughtered and now we're at a point where, why don't we just have fun and I'm not going to yuck your yum. I, I do feel like there has been that complete shift in that. I don't yeah. think it, at least I don't see people ragging on uh other drinkers for what they prefer as much as you would have seen five or so years ago yeah enjoy your enjoy your double dry hop glitter beer yeah awesome <laughs> have fun with it i mean it doesn't matter if it if it gives you delight and joy and it and your day has been hard then that's really all that matters right there it's like you've had a hard day this is something that's going to make you happy I mean, go for it. Yeah, I remember the when um, Unicorn Farts first came out from Duclaw with the glitter in it. And yeah. back then, people were talking crap on that. And I think they went on the Squatty Potty thing, too. Yeah, so that was like the, the next year, I think. They literally um, talk crap about yeah. it for it. <laughs> Whatever. But they, so that that was, I think that, that may have been the that was the final issue of the uncapped magazine. I had that as the cover story about, um, kind of that negativity towards certain types of things. And my standpoint went then, and I still believe now is if, if it brings joy and it makes someone happy, who cares? 
And my whole thing is like my daughter thought the name of that beer and the concept was just absolutely hilarious. And mm-hmm. I really enjoyed watching her laugh so much over the idea of a beer named Unicorn Farts. Exactly. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to be angry about in the world. Yeah. Um, don't. But um, I, I realized that maybe don't get angry about someone having fun, fun with beer. Yeah. You know, at, at, at its core, beer is not something that it makes everyday living maybe a little bit easier at times. But I mean... It's not something that's core and essential to our functioning as humans. It's like it didn't need to exist and we could still breathe tomorrow and still live. But I mean, so I think like, you know, so I think about beer. It's something that's, uh, it's something that in its best way possible, like brings people together, you know, maybe to brighten moods for a bit, have some fun and bring you a little joy in your day. And I think there, that was something where our attitudes have really shifted. I think within the beer world about, you know, back then, I mean, it was really about you, you're, us versus them and don't drink that. That's crap. And like, yeah. you know, there was that, much more pretentiousness. There was a lot more pretentiousness about there too. And I mean, I don't, you know, I just, it still exists. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's still out there. And I yeah. mean, any, any, anything, be it Marvel movies or be it pizza pies, there's always yeah. going to be people that want to, you know, argue about the minutiae and do that too. And that's fine. If you want to go down there, there is any sort of wormhole for you to crawl into if that, if you desire. So you, uh, you recently wrote something about this and I was wondering where do you think the non-alcoholic movement is going? Do you think that'll be continually growing or do you think that's kind of just a fad that's you know, taking think, place? You know, any beer will be here. Any beer has been here for a very long time. It's yeah. just the beers weren't tasting very unique. I think like, God, I think I remember, don't quote me on this and double check it. I think like maybe back in like the 80s, 90s, like the heyday of any beer, it had to reach something like 2% of the market. So at one point in time, like there was more NA beer being bought you know, at one point in time, I, I need to remember the, like, the exact decades, right? But there was like more NA beer being bought than there was now. I think there's there's going to be a place in there. I don't think everybody, I don't think that everybody needs to make an NA beer. Um, I don't think, I think there's going to be a handful of winners in there. Whoever is best capitalized, best flavor profile. So I think we're always, we're going to go see, I think more and more people gravitating toward NA beer. I don't know if it's going to become the same thing in Germany where you have your NA beer with lunch and it becomes such a, a deep part of our culture where we're, it's, it's hard for us in America. Like we're, we're such a binary culture. It's like either off or on and these yeah. middle grounds tend to be really hard to, to hard to describe, but I think it, I'm very excited that there's more and better options out there. I think one thing that people are going to, I know I, I, me as a drinker, I'm, I'm more gravitate toward hop waters. And I think for me, the hop water, like NA beers coming from a place of like, you're taking away the alcohol hop waters to me are building up something from scratch. And so no matter how many NA beers are done really well, there's always like a flavor and I still drink alcohol. So like for me, the flavor is just something I have a hard time getting over. Yeah. And also I think if I'm not drinking beer, I also don't want the calories not to be like, so there, but it's true. Alcohol equals calories and, you know, NA beer does too oftentimes. And so you're seeing, I think some of the newer ones like partake just rebranded. I think 
they really prioritize the fact that theirs only have 10 to 30 calories on there. Um, Which is significantly for, lower than a lot of yeah. the others. Cause aren't they like closer to 80, 90 typically? Yes. Yeah, some I'd say anywhere from like 60 to like 90, even up, uh, up to a hundred sometimes too, which I don't drink soda. So why am I going to get my like liquid calories, my sugary, you're, you're basically consuming sugar water. Yeah. I mean, unfermented <laughs> sugar, unfermented sugar water. So, um, on that sense. And so I think the hop waters to me, but you know, I think the hop waters are going to be in the same sense that IPAs can be divisive. Um, their flavor profiles can also be divisive to people. So I find like a hop water to me, scratch the itch. Like what was it? And the collaborations are getting really cool. Uh, who was it? I had a couple of days ago, hop lark. Um, they had a sparkling water, but they partnered with other half to do a hop water that was done with like a hop bill from one of other half's IPAs. So you got that like aromatic oomph, you got that out there too. And, you know, zero calories and it just hit this, it scratched my itch for something that was different than my water or coffee at, you know, it was like 3 p.m., right? I was sitting at a bar. I wanted to get some work done, but I didn't want a beer at 3 p.m. But it kind of like had that beer adjacent thing for me. So I see that as being for, I see there's, I think the challenge on that, of course, is price points. And the price points for all these are going to be more because Americans tend to equate higher ABV with greater value. But the inputs in these things are the cans, um, the packaging line, the insurance for your employees, all these things all together. The shipping, you can, distribution yeah, costs. And- all that stuff. So you can eliminate, you can eliminate, I think, you know, you're not needing to use like grain and things like herbs. You know, you're not going to need to use maybe so much of certain things, but the other inputs stay static. Yeah, I, I've had some hop larks I've liked and enjoyed. However, like the price is kind of like my problem with that. Like it's so expensive. It is. And then you ask yourself, should I just drink like the cut rate seltzer brand? Um, <laughs> yeah, or in my mind, it was like, uh, maybe I'll just have some iced tea. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. And I think that's it. I, I don't know how, I don't know if people are willing to, you're asking people to do something they haven't done before, which is maybe shift their alcohol allotment dollar, dollars to something that provides an adjacency, but you know, at the at an equivalent price. I don't know if that's. Uh, and real quick that you mentioned other half with them, I would say that talk about a brewery that has kind of defied every other trend, like negative force to breweries. No, you look at them and they're evolving as well. I think they're, they're realistic to where the marketplaces are. You know, they used to host really big beer fat, the pastry town and um, they still have those. They still have pastry town. They still have green city. They're smaller though. Now though. Right. They are. They, they, so they're, they're being right sized for yeah. the audience. Um, this year, Green City was brought back inside the tap room. And it's um, not it's not consistent, but they still have a few releases where people line up for them. Like I think last year they had a the the annual potato release. People were yeah. lined around the block for there's opening new locations. Like it's Yeah. There's always gonna be things that get people out the door. I mean, this yeah. is not to say that Wine culture is over. I mean, some brands just kind of exist in the universe of their own creation. Like Treehouse still refuses for Brightly. They're still able to sell the beer out of their own facilities and people still line up and buy it. So I think yeah. there's always going to be 
outliers and huge success story. People can sell at every drop, but other people may need to work. People were just, I think, for by and large, the biggest shifts are, you know, you know, people used to come to you for craft, come to breweries for the beer at all cost. That's what they wanted. And they're like, oh my gosh, I got this. Thank you so much. I can't believe I got this in my hand. And nowadays, I think breweries have to think on the hospitality side, the marketing side, all these other things that you have to work a little bit harder or a lot harder in that case, I think, to get people to care about a product that they may have like just, you know, gone on. And even just, I think, the, the social media where people could use Instagram as their own kind of platform for marketing, advertising. But you just see nowadays, I mean, it's not a one-to-one that, you know, but companies understand that. And so you posts are restricted or they get fewer, fewer views or yeah. you got to pay more money. So I think the, um, how we communicate, to, how breweries communicate to people, how they advertise to people. Um, and like, you know, it's, it's weird. It's like, we're at a point where meet the, like, like professional media landscape is shrinking and there's fewer beer outlets than there used to be, as you know. And I mean, it's just, I can go back and like the graveyard, like draft magazines gone, um, you know, beer advocate magazines gone on there too. Um, I can go back like culture, the cheese magazine once had me write a beer column for them for like seven years. I reviewed beers for eater.com for a while for the drinks vertical and all those things like dried up as sort of, I think interest in, the, the focal point of craft beer shifted to other beverages. That's, and that's just it. Like things change. Nothing stays, nothing stays central forever. What do you think about like the, the growing sobriety movement? Do you think that'll continue to grow or do you think that's something that'll fizzle out and people will go back to drinking? Um, you know, historically prohibition or not, otherwise in America, we've always like drank about consumed about the same amount of beverage alcohol. Um, I think people are, I think there's more options to consume great tasting non-alcoholic products than ever before. And if people would like that option, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. And some people do definitely have, you know, like alcohol can be something that there can be too much of a good time and too much of a good thing for people. So I think having options that don't make you feel like you're an other you're othered that you know you can still be part of like have compelling fun things to drink that's not a shirley temple um yeah and that yeah that's not or um god what was the uh, oh yeah oduels you know oduels was a punchline right they were punchlines i mean it was like well you're not drinking were you pregnant you know <laughs> yeah i mean things like that and i mean it's there's i think societal pressures Societal pressures are always going to be there because that's society for you. But I think there's going to be less. I think there's there's always going to be people that choose not to drink for reasons, and that's okay. Um, I don't foresee it becoming, you know, I don't foresee it becoming the biggest, you know, being something where all of a sudden we're a nation of teetotalers. Um, Because if you look at historical trends, but our like how people utilize and don't utilize alcohol change but the big thing in there that could maybe you know change that sort of the the legalization of cannabis and so you may not consume alcohol but maybe you consume cannabis and how do we judge what is sobriety and what is you know what is not and so i think our the the states of what we consider to be sobriety sobriety is often meant kind of alcohol and it's not meant other drugs in quite the same way shape and form but, you know, looking at Minnesota as a case study that they've legalized, you know, have derived THC and now breweries are making THC beverages consumed side by side in the tap rooms. 
I think we're moving into a place where all these beverages that you drink, don't drink, you want to get, you want to get buzz on with your THC beverage, you want a double IPA. To have that previously, I felt like you, there are all these different silo worlds together, and now things are getting to be where everything's really intermingling together in a way that never happened before. We're two days away from um, recreational use being legalized in Maryland. So it's yep. going to be interesting to see what type of effect that has on local breweries here. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, New York legalized what, like a year ago, decriminalized. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, it's, uh, I, I, I'm not a heavy like, cannabis smoker or whatever, but I do have a vape pen it helps me get to bed at the end of the night. It's either like, do I need a whisk of bourbon at 10 yeah. on a Tuesday or maybe a couple of hits off the Indica dominant vape pen? will serve my need, which would maybe like sleep, something like that. Yeah. I had a uh, G leaf on their headquartered in Frederick. They, um, they grow, produce and have dispensaries in several States and they're expecting in Maryland, a 400% increase in sales come yeah. J- July 1st. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of money bet on, bet on the cannabis industry and I, I don't, I'm not like, I don't follow it as close to the beer world, but you know, there's regulation versus optimism versus kind of, you know, how things are being adopted. It's, it's not always a slam dunk to just start selling it, that there's so yeah. many, so many, so many factors about that and the black market's not going away. Yeah. They, one of their data points was, um, I mean, I'd have to re-listen to the episode, but it, it was, there's like three some million people, uh, residents in Maryland, but there's only like 140,000 people who hold a medical card. So, yeah. And there's obviously there's most likely way more than a hundred and some thousand people in Maryland that consume cannabis or what are curious to consume. Yeah. I think there's, I mean, this is a whole nother conversation for another time, but yeah, it just feels that, there's almost in that way that we had to learn a whole new vernacular around beer, that there's a whole opportunity, I think, to help people understand these differences and things like that. And I mean, it's just because we've not been able to have these conversations above board yet. Um, what is the best way for people to keep up to date with what you're doing? Yeah, totally. Uh, my website, joshuambernstein.com. Um, I tend to update with all my stories, events, things like that. Um, Instagram, uh, Josh M Bernstein. I tend to have a Twitter account, but I don't use Twitter as much as I used to. <laughs> <laughs> and you can friend me on Facebook if you want, but you're just going to see a picture of my kid every three months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you, are, do you have, a, another book you're currently working on or are you taking a hiatus from book authoring yeah. for a little bit? Uh, this project kind of broke me. Um, <laughs> to be honest. And so I am taking a bit of a break from book writing at the moment. Um, but I'm still, I got a full slate of stories. I'm still working for, Oh gosh, New York times, food and wine, men's journal, all those things too. I'm like yeah. writing stories every, I've always perpetually got three to five stories I'm working on at any given moment and um, helping out some brands with better, helping them understand the market, doing a bit of consulting and, um, yeah, in writing. But yep. Um, as far as book projects, I don't know if you got a good idea, I'm all ears. <laughs> all right. uh, do you have time to answer a couple intentionally stupid questions? Yeah, why not? Who would win in a battle between a ninja and a pirate? 
Um, I would say the pirates craftier. They spent more time at seas withstanding the harsh elements, and they are crafty and they're willing to basically not fight by a code of honor. Congratulations, that is the correct answer. <laughs> Does I feel like being a New Yorker, you're gonna have a strong opinion on this one. Does pineapple belong on pizza? No, not at all. Also correct. Pineapple, pineapple <laughs> on pizza is terrible. Like I don't care. If you want to have pineapple and bacon on your pizza, whatever ham, go for it. But never order it if I'm in your presence. Expect <laughs> me to enjoy a slice. You know, people. Yeah, no, no pineapple on pizza. Is is Nickelback a good band? Mm, depends how drunk you are. <laughs> uh, what's better, cats or dogs? Uh, dogs. What I if, do not need, I don't do not need to be ignored by something, and then <laughs> have it expect my love, or or have it meet out to help. I'd rather have, um, I'd rather have loyalty that I can trust on, and not the fickleness of a cat. Something that could either love you or decide it's going to scratch your eyes out. Yeah, or steal my breath like that old. Oh God, I remember that. What what movie was that? Sleepwalkers, maybe. Oh, I know exactly uh, what you're talking about. Maybe like, where the uh, cat climbs know, up on the kid and like the steals his breath. Yeah. Um, movies are impressionable. <laughs> <laughs> what is the weirdest item you keep next to your bed? Um, what's the weirdest item I keep next to my bed? Oh, I'm looking at my bed. Um, probably my kids, uh, my kids like uh, tissues that she leaves on the bedside and I forget to take them up. Her used tissues and, and, and non ending cavalcade of a uh, babysitter's club books. <laughs> <laughs> What is your go-to breakfast cereal? Oh, man. I'm like the guy that doesn't eat breakfast, but um, uh, my kid loves it's uh, whatever the Trader Joe's, like peanut butter puffs. Oh, those are probably they're, good. They are pretty good. Uh, who's your favorite Disney princess and why? Oh, do I, do I have a favorite Disney princess? God, you have a kid, I think you only, have to. Uh, <laughs> I think... Um, was Elsa a princess in Frozen? Uh, yeah, she counts as a princess. And, and that's also because, like, you know, it gave me an excuse to make up the endless jokes. Um, you know, uh, God, what was it? It was something along the lines like, uh, why, why was Elsa always so angry? <laughs> why? She could never let it go. <laughs> Nice. And my kid actually just walked by right now. I could could hear her in the background. What is the most used emoji on your phone? Um, The most used emoji on the phone. Um, Maybe I think the thumbs up. I'm kind of lame with emojis. I I use the thumbs up and the smile a lot or the laughing one a lot. I would say the thumbs up is probably my favorite one. Um. What would the title of your autobiography be? There were never enough dumplings. <laughs> Guess you're a dumpling fan. <laughs> Who would play you in a movie about your life? Uh, Jason Schwartzman, I guess. Who's that? Uh, you know, Rushmore. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I used to get that good. a lot, like when Rushmore yes, came out. That, like, that's a good one. You're right. Me and Jason Schwartzman were, uh, yeah. People were squinting. It was late enough at night. I got a lot of Rushmore. All right, one more. What is your go-to excuse to get out of plans? Um, 
my kid. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's one of the best <laughs> things of get having a kid is it's a built-in excuse to get out of anything. Oh yeah, I'm like I'm sorry, I got to pick my kid up from school. I can't meet your five o'clock meeting. It's like, yeah. oh no, <laughs> my kid's not feeling well. It's like, oh, I don't want to do it. You know, <laughs> it's just a, uh, it's a, you know, a always good get out of jail free card. Well, thank thank you so much for your time today. I look forward to reading. Um, what is I've, I'm going to mess up the name? So why don't you just tell the name of the book? I'm oh, going to the complete beer course. All the subtitles. I did have are, it right. <laughs> yeah, um, um, but you know one one thing is interesting. I forgot to point out. I think like the original subtitle of the book was like complete the complete beer course boot camp for beer geeks from novice expert and twelve tasting classes. And, like you can notice this new edition. We basically. Even this idea of like the word beer geek can be kind of, you know, othering or yeah. something. I don't know. So we took out all that stuff and it was like, why don't we just make this more pleasurable and not do that too? So it's like even subtle shifts like that are things that we have a lot of like thought, thought processes on. So go to Josh's website and order a copy that's autographed. Or if you're lazy, just go on Amazon and you can have it next day. <laughs> it's, it's true. And you get on Amazon, just shoot me a message and I'll make sure to get you our fun packs of AI generated terrifying stickers nice. for people with far too many fingers drinking beer. <laughs> they, it seems like they finally have that refined a little bit where not everything has too many fingers now with AI generated oh, stuff. Oh man. I mean, I'll send you some of the stickers after I get okay. the phone, but the, they're, they're hilarious. It's like, how many fingers at nine? Nine <laughs> fingers to hold a beer. It's kind of like, <laughs> There is a Maryland brewery, I'll just say their name, uh, Hysteria, that stopped using artists and have been using AI-generated art for labels and stuff. And they do a lot of raccoon-themed things because their number one beer is Trash Panda. And there would be some times where the raccoon had like 10 fingers and it was just the creepiest looking thing in the world. Yeah, we spent a lot of time messing around with like Midjourney and AI to generate these fun stickers for the book stuff. It was just, yeah, yeah. Um, it's the, the mind. Yeah, the computers have twisted minds. If it like that. <laughs> uh, well, as I said, thank you for your time today. I think the book will probably be delivered like shortly after we hang up. Uh, so I look forward to reading it. And uh, timing, yeah. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Cheers. Cheers. Be well, everybody. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Oh, my God. That's good.